Hello, and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast in which we explore life, the universe, and the old Delphic maxim for the human organism to know thyself, otherwise known as anthropology. Each episode, we sit down with a visiting fellow traveller in the annals of human research to talk about their research, about the state of the discipline, and what anthropology, broadly understood, has to tell us all in the 21st century. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is brought to you with the support of the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in association with the American Anthropological Association. I'm David Border-Giles, I'm a lecturer in Anthropology at Deakin University and as usual I'm joined by Dr Timothy Neal, a research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation and our guest co-host today is Dr Andrea Whitcomb, Professor of Cultural Heritage and Museum Studies at Deakin University. And Andrea's joined us before, so thanks for coming back. And our guest today is Dr Shanti Sumatoyo, Associate Professor of Design Research at Monash University and a member of the Emerging Technologies Lab, also at Monash University. Shanti's work currently spans three overlapping areas. The first is ongoing research on how people experience commemorative sites and events particularly in the context of the First World War centenary. The second is a suite of collaborative ethnographic investigations into how people encounter and make sense of designed environments, with a focus on instances of urban spatial transformation. The final research stream is concerned with healthcare environments and how their design might contribute to forms of well-being. All three areas are linked by methodologies that include sensory and digital ethnography, and research projects are often funded and conducted in collaboration with external industry partners. Shanti's the author and editor of numerous books, including most recently Atmospheres and the Experiential World, Theory and Methods with Sarah Pink, and Uncertainty and Possibility, New Approaches to Future Making in Design Anthropology with Sarah Pink and Yoko Akama, both out last year, in fact. Yes. That's right. Great. It was a good year last year. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like you've had a lot of good years. Yeah. Just looking at your publication. It was a particularly list. good year last year. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Shanti and Andrew, thanks very much for coming. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Shanti, you're a geographer and an ethnographer. Tell us a little bit about your journey to those uh, different lands. Where did you start, and what was it that bent your destinies towards the anthropos and ethnos and geos? Well, I actually started in none of those places, in none of those lands. I started in the land of sociology, which is what I did my PhD in. But in that work, I looked at a, um, I looked at a particular place. I looked at Trafalgar Square in London. And I realized as I went through the PhD that it was actually a geography PhD because I was interested in this site, mm. how people experienced it, what the symbols were in it ar around national identity. Um, and I really wanted to understand how all these things work together to kind of buttress and uh, reinforce national identity. It wasn't until the end, when I was writing the abstract for the PhD, the day before I handed it in, as you do. This, <laughs> this, yeah, it's the moment you understand what your PhD yeah. is actually about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I uh, thought, oh, this is actually a geography PhD. Oh, well, I'll put it in. Fortunately, you know, I went all right. But since then, I have self-identified as a geographer, written into geography journals um, because I'm really interested in place. I'm really interested in sites, mm -hmm. how we make sense of them, how they work on us, what they do for us, and what emplacement can tell us about mm -hmm. lots and lots of other questions. So these are obviously also um, areas of concern and interest for anthropologists. So my 
attraction to ethnographic methodologies, mm-hmm. which I've learned from colleagues who are anthropologists, have become really powerful for me in understanding place and its meaning for people. Mm-hmm. So let's go to those ethnographic methodologies. It mm. seems to us that one of the common threads throughout your work is a, a constellation of almost Zen methodologies, research methods that seem attuned to the effective, the ephemeral, and the ineffable in our subjective experience, even more than most ethnography allows us to do. So can you tell us a little bit about those methodologies? What is sensory ethnography and what draws you to it? Yeah, I love this word constellation of methodologies because I do think that we should be allowed to compose our understanding of the world from lots of different places mm. and be promiscuous, if I may, <laughs> with, our, with our approach to, in, to, to investigating mm. and interrogating the world. The reason, the reason I'm attracted to thinking through and with the sensory and effective, I think is because I started as a sociologist with looking at systems and structures and symbols. And because that was sort of my way into thinking about sight, and because that always left me sort of feeling as if the inquiry was incomplete, Mm -hmm. I really wanted to understand how places felt to people. And so what does feeling mean, Mm -hmm. right? And so for me, I've kind of got it roughly mapped out in my head as being broadly around the sensory, so linking us to embodiment, linking us to our surroundings, weather, light, sound, smell, all these things that take you straight um, to the work of anthropologists like Tim Ingold, obviously, but also the effective. So how is this felt and imagined? How does it escape being able to necessarily be described perfectly? How does it always sort of exceed what we're able to put into text? And so here I turn to affect theory Mm -hmm. to try to sort of get at how feeling is composed and then how feeling makes places significant and meaningful for us. So it's still about meaning in the sense yes. that symbolic, you know, sites and representations in the built environment are about meaning, but it's about how that's individualized and then how that's also part of shared and collective experience in place. There is then a sort of subset of questions here because, mm. as you know, there, there's a lot of debate in discussions around affect the senses and what we broadly term beyond representation about what the relationship Mm. between those senses and feelings and affect might be Mm. to the representational Mm. world. So Mm. if we take this to to a question around sites, how important is it for you to make a link between what people feel Mm. and experience at a place Mm. to the actual textual qualities of that place sure which might of course involve things like the weather and light and sound which are experiential qualities attributes of the place not physical but the physical will also come into it right so how do you deal with that in your own work and how do you situate yourself within that kind of question about whether those that deal with politics of representation and those that deal with affect are literally in two different camps yeah or do you see yourself as trying to make a bridge between the two of them yeah yeah well i mean this is what i think is powerful about starting with sight is that you don't have to bifurcate 
yeah. into these camps, right? Because mm-hmm. you're there in the place, and you know you imagine yourself in a in a site like Trafalgar Square, for example, mm-hmm. in London, or Federation Square here in Melbourne, or any any of these places that have these kind of strong symbolic vocabularies in them. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't in your experience separate out what you see and what you feel exactly. because you're you're doing it all, right? Yeah. And and we're all doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really troubled by that. Uh, you know, as sort of two different camps, as you put it, because I think that that sight and thinking experientially allows you to see the experiences composed of the symbolic and representational as well as the sensory and the effective. So you don't need to separate these out. And I actually think you need to find your way into a question somewhere. You need to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. But that isn't to say that we have to exclude things because our experience isn't exclusive. It doesn't course along lines that exclude, you know, one side or the other. So I'm not particularly troubled by that. But as I said, I am quite promiscuous in my in my <laughs> methodologies and in my kind of theoretical um, sort of uh, dabbling. So yeah, I'm not so troubled by that at all. And in fact, I think it's really important that we do both and that we find ways to talk both to symbolic and representational environments and surroundings mm-hmm. and also to how they feel. I think it's really important if we're going to understand how these sites are designed and can be designed well, which we'll talk about a bit Mm. later on. I think it's really important that we understand all these things as happening and working together. I'm aware that some people do have very invested, you know, places within within those debates. So I did wonder, can you tell us a little bit more about what the actual methodologies that you use to capture the affective and the, the kind of experiential are? Well, this gets directly back to the points that we were just making about everything being part of the same thing, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. So you're always starting with yourself yeah. and with the research participant. So my methodologies usually include having an experience of a site of my own that I can draw on in order to have a way in to understand somebody else's experience, but also trying to allow people to talk to me about their experiences in their own terms. So I have some terms that of course, and this is a balancing act, right? But mm-hmm. there are some terms that I've, some ways of understanding it that I've composed based on my own body and my own, you know, senses and my own feelings and my own awareness of what's around me. But those for me provide a route into trying to understand other people's experiences. Right. So often what I do then is I'll have a sort of a very broad question. I, so I use visual methods a lot. I use photography and video quite a lot. And so, for example, it, In a project, I might ask people to take photographs of things that they think are important. And I might might suggest that there are things that are important, such as, for example, if I'm interested in light or sound in that environment, Mm -hmm. if I'm interested in the use of technology, you know, and these are depending on what Mm -hmm. questions the research project is trying to address. But what happens when you ask people to photograph, of course, is that they figure out their own terms for how that side is important to them. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of having to think, well, what does she mean by light? Or what does she mean by technology? And determine that in their own ways and then compose a set of images that then we talk about. And usually when we talk about images or notes or impressions, I video those encounters because it allows uh, the making of research materials that you can use 
yourself subsequently, but you can also use with research participants subsequently. Mm. Um, so I've also asked people to make videos, for example. Mm-hmm. And what we often find is as we're talking about the videos or about images, they see things that they didn't see at the time. And so these new conversations open up as an affordance of using these kinds of technologies. So I find that really fascinating because you're basically trying to get someone to constitute a set of terms about something they've never really thought about explicitly before. Yeah. So you're setting them quite a difficult task, right? Yes. Then produce something that they can then talk about. And then in an encounter with a researcher, try to describe and try to surface and find the language to talk about this often ineffable, mm. sensory, fleeting sort of aspect of space. And I find that using these kind of digital technologies helps give lots of opportunities for those conversations to really be speculative and exploratory and people to feel as if they're owning this, you know, in really powerful ways. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the principles Mm -hmm. around using that kind of visual material that I find sort of really powerful. And so it's never about capturing experience. It's about making research materials that you can then use to reflect on and to discuss experience. That's a really important point, that it's not about capturing experience per se. Experience doesn't sit outside us to be captured, right? Mm -hmm. Experience is how we're in the flow of our ongoing lives. Mm -hmm. And so a photograph is only ever going to be you know, a visual slice of something that allows a conversation to unfold. It's never a capture of experience. You know, it's always framed, right? Mm, it yeah. always has materialities, digital materialities, you know, yeah. technological affordances. You know, it always has these things. So you treat it as, a, as an invitation or as an opening to discussion. And also on that, using video allows you to think about not just what people see, but what they hear and how they move. And I've used video myself, I've used GoPros a bit on my own body as I trace through sites and through yes. places, because you see the movement of the body, you hear the sounds, you know, you see the irregularity of decision making, will I go over here, or will I go over here, as you sort of shift around. Mm-hmm. So these kind of technologies, they're not capturing experience, but they're making a way of thinking about experience possible because of what they allowed to cascade forward. That that reflective capacity seems to me really interesting. I hosted a workshop, not myself being a sensory ethnographer, but hosted a workshop on sensory ethnography for PhD and early career researching uh, anthropologists. And all of us were like, we pay attention to this stuff when we're out doing field work Mm. and writing field notes, but it gives you a a reflective structure that Mm -hmm actually is of massive benefit to actually have it structured rather than intuitive or maybe I'll remember to write down how a place smelt or how you know how it felt on my skin yeah and and not just that but it allows you to surface those structures and share them with others right Mm -hmm. so you can say to someone well here's this little video that I made what do you think of that right Mm -hmm. and so then you're having a you're having a conversation with your research participants, which is one of co-creation of mm-hmm. knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. It's not you're not doing research on them. You know, you're always doing research with them, right? Like as anthropologists, that's yes. given. Mm-hmm. But that kind of material makes it visible to others rather than just making it visible to yourself. And it also makes it visible to anthropologists in a way that we might honestly miss sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, what, one of the things I appreciate about this conversation is we actually, on the podcast, don't talk about methodologies that much. Mm. 
and that you know there's a way in which the methodologies are often uh, often given, often taken for granted, and there's a real sort of logocentrism right. to a lot of you know like I'm teaching methodologies now, yeah. uh, and you know a lot of what we tell them is to write field notes, write, 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 write. <laughs> you know, even though we've you know the discipline has had that moment where it's taken that apart and put it back together. Yeah. But still, we teach them to write field notes. So yeah. it strikes me that there's a kind of intervention that you could help us make. Right. And it even seems like, I mean, tell me what you think about this. It even seems like there's something about sensory ethnography that's an inherently or distinctly feminist methodology. Yeah, right. I mean, if you want to kind of, you know, put a label on it, I that suppose. Works, yeah. <laughs> well, but it, you know, right? Yeah, right, right. In that it, you know, in that it sort of surf, it, it can surface the minor, it can it can ask you to attend to things that mm. you may not have noticed. It's certainly, I mean, I I did a little project in a market and one of the things I did was I wore a GoPro on a backpack strap and I moved around. And I could see the movement of my body and I could see my gait, mm. which is kind of uneven because, you know, I've got a sort of a one sore knee and another mm. knee that's like, you know. And so everybody's body, you know, the body was in the frame, even though it wasn't in the frame, because the way the camera moved reflected how my body was moving and how I was making decisions. Mm. And I did another one where I had it attached to the strap of my handbag. And so you could see my hand going in and, and out, mm. getting my wallet, you know, getting the change, popping in. And so you get this kind of ghost of the researcher almost mm. sitting behind the camera, which again, you know, reminds you that you're not capturing experience. You know, you're, you're in it, you know, you're representing it in a particular way, but there's more and more and more to reflect upon that sits behind it when you use these kinds of methodologies. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've been part of a little project that has used GoPros as well with yeah. primary school children mm. and high school children mm. in exhibition settings. Mm. And the idea there was to try and document and capture their affective responses yeah. and conversations to what it was that they were experiencing and seeing, but then also to sit down with them and have a further conversation yeah. about those experiences yeah. so exactly what you were saying you know to produce something that then was conducive to having a more reflective conversation where mm. the research participants are in a sense given an opportunity to reflect yeah. and therefore produce new knowledge about themselves and what they experienced absolutely in that space yeah, yeah. and so these things are are important and they do I mean for us the context was exhibitions that dealt with difficult pasts with difficult mm. histories or with encounters across difference racism mm. and so on encountering the other so you know traditionally I think audience studies in the museum setting has very much been about establishing what it is that students learn yeah. in an exhibition whereas this kind of tried to turn that on its head yeah. and sort of say okay well what is the nature of engagement yeah. and what is it about the space itself and its sensory attributes mm. that then either enable or disable or what is it that people do with that yeah. what does in it their afford? own what does it afford yeah and GoPro certainly helped yeah in creating a body of material that both gave us the kind of evidence that you're talking about, the mm. movement through space, mm -hmm. um, 
individual conversations, conversations between people, mm. but then was also something that you could discuss with the students mm. themselves to enlarge in that frame, another step. I mean, the, the other thing I particularly like about using that technology, because it can be on the body and, you know, it's not as cumbersome as holding a video camera or mm. so, something like that, mm. is that when you're making the footage, because you're in movement, you're you're always on the cusp of the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen next, yeah. right? Yeah. So you create this artifact when you have a GoPro clip that fixes artificially this kind of moment of uncertainty, this kind of ongoing moment of uncertainty mm-hmm. that it kind of represents. So when you're when I'm using those kinds of methodologies in a site like like a market or I can imagine in a museum. Of course, you've got this footage to look back at, and it tells a kind of logic. But you have to remember that at the moment at which it's made, nobody knows what they're going to do next. And or what they're going to encounter. What they're going to encounter, mm-hmm. how they're going to react. You know, are they going to turn away or sort of turn towards? So video, you've got to kind of hold this tension in mind. On the one hand, you've got this like great material that you can really look at. But on the other hand, the logics of that material are not the logics with which they were made, because it's always ongoing, it's emergent, it's unknown, it's uncertain. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about this when I looked at um, some footage that I made in a market. And I realized, and this was, because I'd done this project in Melbourne, but I was happened to be in France and I had the GoPro with me, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just pop it on as I walk around the markets uh, in this sort of town where I was staying in France. Not knowing what I would encounter, but thinking, well, I've got it, I might as well like have a crack, right? And what I discovered, and also because my French isn't very good, so I was there was a lot I was trying to manage. I was trying to understand this site. I had this camera. I was trying to interact with people, you know, of which I could only understand about 30 or 40 percent. And I could see how my decision making changed. So I bought something here and I, or some fruit and I thought, oh, maybe a bit of cheese. Oh, there's some cheese over there, mm. you know, and you can sort of see me, you know, my body kind of shifting around and then kind of drifting off towards the cheese. And then I, there's this moment where I wander and I remember thinking, oh, I've got cheese, I've got fruit, I need bread. So, so then I had to trace back and go back to the bakery and then, you know, figure out what I wanted and, you know, accidentally ask for two baguette <laughs> rather than one baguette, you know. So I'm like, OK, whatever. So I've got all this stuff. But, but it was, you know, it was with that recorded artifact Mm -hmm. that I was able to reflect on the contingency of that experience and how that was actually what it felt like to me to be in that market is this uncertainty you enter it you don't know what you're going to see you don't know what you're going to buy but this video allowed me to reflect on that. It's really interesting because I think it's so easy to forget as a researcher that the people you're working with don't know the site that you're focusing on as well as you do. So yeah. you actually know what they're going to encounter, but yeah. they don't. Well, you think so you know what they're going to encounter. Well, you know the site. You don't know what yeah. what they make of it, yeah. but you do know the site. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. And it's all too easy to kind of forget that. Yeah. So you're just helping us to remember that. Yeah. This kind of segues nicely to the next question we had, which is kind of about how does holding on to or capturing some of this everydayness was the political importance of it. Maurice Blanchot once said that the everyday escapes. And so for him, he was kind of pointing out that a lot of where we live, the crummy everydayness of where we live, escapes from what we call history. Events don't happen there. Events happen, you know, in the French Revolution and, and, and all those kind of big, big things uh, which we can't possibly uh, experience ourselves. 
But you and your work really insist on the kind of political importance of the sensory and effective, as we've been discussing. Mm. What for you is the politics of focusing on the senses and the sensorium? Like, what are the possibilities of thinking atmospherically uh, about uh, the worlds we encounter? Yeah, I mean, for me, it really goes back to this notion of emergence that I was just talking about. Because attending to the senses, because you're in the flow of everyday life and you don't know what's going to happen next, there's always this possibility that something, well, something new is always going to happen, right? And within that newness, and here, here I turn to theorists of affect like Masumi, who talks about affect having unacted out potential. So there's always a possibility for something to happen that you can't predict or that doesn't course along the same channels as everything else that has happened before, or even if it does for it to happen in a new way. And so this is where I see a politics of the experiential starting to crack open a little bit how we predict events will unfold, right? Here in attending to the minor, we can see diversity in how we understand the world. You know, it's not just one uh, Vitruvian body that's important, it's all bodies that are important. And I, this gets back to your question about, you know, is this, are these kind of feminist methodologies? Mm-hmm. Because there's certainly, you know, anchored in these feminist approaches to thinking about the world, you know, which attends to the everyday, because the everyday is where we all live our lives, you know? And we make small decisions about how we interact with each other, the kind of spaces mm-hmm. we feel safe in, how we treat our children, the, you know, do we take this tram or the next tram because this tram's got a kind of weirdo on it and so you want to wait for the next one, right? Like, we're all making these decisions and these are political because they're about how we interact with each other and how we interact the structures that are important in our lives, the political structures. So I guess in two ways, I mean, thinking effectively and thinking through experience opens up possibility, but it also allows you to attend to diversity and to complexity, and to not force everything into the same shape, but to be able to attune to the diversity of experiences that people are having, especially in public spaces, which are the kind of spaces that I'm most interested in, mm-hmm. public sites, mm-hmm. where you know we're all kind of making sense of them slightly differently. So that affords me mm-hmm. <laughs> a segue into our next question for you, which is around your work on commemoration. The work that we have had on the politics of commemoration in the main has tended to argue that commemoration is inherently conservative, that it has exclusivist Mm. ideas about mostly who is contained within the nation Mm. because usually commemoration is within national Mm. spaces, usually not exclusively. And I think it would be probably fair enough to say that the work that deals with the politics of representation has, in the main, Mm. been attentive to the way in which those commemorative practices are homogenizing and hegemonizing. Absolutely. Yeah. So my question would then be, in what ways does your attention to the senses Mm. attune you to the ways in which these commemorative practices in which feelings and senses and the experiential might indeed contribute to reinforcing that understanding of the role of commemorative practices or alternatively open up 
a more attuned attention to the diversity of experience and therefore to the diversity of meanings that such commemorative practices might have. Yeah, I think, I mean, I should start by saying that I try to treat commemoration as something that exists in the world in powerful ways, whether it's conservative or progressive, and it usually is conservative. Mm. Um, It does exist in the world. Governments spend a lot of money on it. It's part of our everyday landscapes in many cities, and a lot of people participate in it. So as a thing, you know, no matter what your politics are, like as a way that people assemble, think about themselves as groups, perform kind of rituals that are related to aspects of their identity, it is significant. You know, Mm -hmm. it's something that a lot of people do and a lot of money is spent on. But what I wanted to do with my project, Commemoration Reframed, is to push back against accounts of commemoration that kind of start and finish with the politics of it, the sort of the big P politics of it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of start with the narrative, the symbols, the representation, you know, the kind of frankly quite tired discourse Mm -hmm. that only allows it, exactly as you say, only allows it to take particular shapes. And I thought to myself, so many people participate in this. How are these shapes? How are these cliches? to be honest, being treated and interpreted. What kinds of meanings do they have and how might we kind of complicate this a little bit? So um, by attending to the sensory and to the effective, one of the things that I've really uncovered, I suppose, is how these sorts of elements are just as important as the symbolic and discursive aspects, the political aspects, in making them meaningful. But that they are made meaningful in a much wider variety of ways than the kind of playbook of Mm. texts would have us believe. So, for example, I've done a lot of work on Anzac Day in Australia, and one of the things I sort of found is that in an event like the Dawn Service, which happens every Anzac Day, that the sensory apprehension of darkness and of temperature change, of light changing, is absolutely entangled with the discursive and sort of political aspects of it. And that you can't really understand how this is working on people and why it's so compelling for people if you don't account for the sensory and for the effective and for the feeling of gathering with all these other people. Because you think, why? Why, you know, after 100 years, is this still so compelling for people? And it is. And not for everybody. In fact, not for most people. Mm. For those... Who go. Who go, and for those for whom it is compelling, and they are, you know, the audiences of bipartisan political interest, yes. you know. This doesn't just run along conservative lines. It does, it is a bipartisan project. Yeah, totally yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we have to kind of understand what sort of work these other sorts of things are doing. So, so the project that I'm working through at the moment is looking at the 11th of November 2018 in 12 different countries around the world. So this is the moment of the end of the First World War centenary. And everybody in that project has a focus on the experiential, Mm -hmm. but from different perspectives. So we've got artists, political scientists, social psychologists, geographers, and historians. So Mm -hmm. there's some cats to herd there (laughs) in terms of bringing that, that material together. But everyone's looking at the experiential, and we sort of want to see how this is playing across different national contexts because those politics are different. Are different in different places, yeah. yeah. So look, I mean, I absolutely take the point that in looking at something like commemoration, I'm engaging in a conservative politics, mm-hmm. absolutely. I think that it's important to understand what work 
that's doing for people because it is working for people in many ways. And even for those people for whom it's not working, Anzac Day is still a day off, right? So (laughs) it's still still there, right? It's still there. And so I did a project last year in which I asked people who went to ceremonies and who didn't go to ceremonies to take 10 pictures on Anzac Day. And people were able to attune to the notion of Anzac Day because they had a set of categories for it. I didn't tell them anything more than take 10 photos of Anzac Day and, you know, what's important. So I got photos of the clock radio. I got photos of the cat, you know, sitting on the book, you know, a walk in the park. Then I got photos of the dawn service or people buying medals. But I got a lot of photos of just everyday life. But no one asked, what do you mean by Anzac Day? Mm Because everybody knew, even those who who didn't like it, who didn't agree with it, who were outraged by this kind of carnivalesque kind of spectacle of Anzac Day, you know, of which there are many. Everyone has that category. So whether we like it or not, it is part of our, our kind of social repertoire. Mm-hmm. So let's try to understand it in its complexity rather than kind of relegating it to just a conservative politics. Now, and, you, and also you're quite right. It is really important to understand how conservative politics works. Mm. Absolutely. Or any politics. Or any politics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something that I hadn't been really able to articulate until this moment, which is uh, come about in our conversations about your methods, Shanti, which is the kind of intention with an idea of prediction. You know, that we have a lot of disciplines, and I guess cognitive psychology is one, that has grown around trying to predict what publics are up to mm. in, in public spaces, whereas yours seems kind of anti-prediction. Mm. So I wanted to use this as an opportunity to think about another context you've worked in, which is design, mm. Uh, mm. a world where people are trying to produce mm. objects for the future for future human beings. Mm. So so thinking of that, first, I guess, what is design ethnography? And how does, how does design ethnography articulate with anthropology? Design ethnography, um, and this is work I've been doing in collaboration with, you know, colleagues. I mean, as all my work is, I'm, you know, I'm never sort of working on my own. But design ethnography, as, as we've been formulating it, puts ethnography at the centre of design and puts design at the centre of ethnography. So what does that mean? Putting ethnography at the centre of design, design is kind of roughly about solving problems, right, in a very, you know, rough and ready formulation. But of course, to design well, you need to understand what the thing is that you're designing towards, what future you're trying to make when you design. So that means understanding the problem in particular ways. And this is how designers think, not not all designers, but this is the convention of how design education runs, you know, that design is about sort of solving problems. So our argument is that ethnographic approaches allow us to understand the problem in terms constituted by people who are actually going to make use of this thing, this design artifact, rather than just in the minds of the designers. And of course, designers do, you know, very rigorous research about the conditions that they're designing for and, you know, how objects are going to be used and this sort of thing. But our contention is that there's a lot that design and ethnography can learn from each other about how to think about the future. So designers can learn from ethnographers about how to think about people's everyday experiential worlds and how design isn't going to revolutionize things. It's going to come alongside all the other things that people are doing in their everyday lives. So I always like to think of 
the notion of advention rather than intervention. So, you know, design is often couched in terms of intervening or intervention, which is a kind of a piercing or a disrupting or a, mm. or a changing. Advention is the notion of coming alongside, you know, adding something, augmenting something. I always think of it as like a baby whale coming alongside <laughs> a mum whale, you know, it's sort of swimming along together. There's sort of making something new, but not in a sense of dis- a disruptive technology or a kind of interventional technology. So ethnography really allows you to see what's kind of already happening that you're designing into rather than what are you going to disrupt. So that's putting ethnography into design. Mm -hmm. When we put design into ethnography, we adopt a future orientation that, as you say, isn't predictive, but that is a mode of futurity. Because designers are always thinking, exactly as you say, Mm -hmm. always thinking forward about what is this, you know, what are conditions going to be like in the future? How can this sort of shift those conditions? What are people going to need? What are they going to want in the future? Putting that into ethnography puts ethnography into an anticipatory mode. Mm. You know, you're really foregrounding those emergent and uh, future-oriented aspects of ethnography. And and ethnography does have this sense of crystallizing a slice of the past. You know, like when you do ethnographic research, you're you're making notes or you're making mm. photographs or videos and you think, mm. okay, this is something that's already happened, so let's not treat this as the ever-present, mm. ever-future, mm. right? Mm-hmm. This is something that's already happened, but when you bring it together with design, you know, you're inviting an anticipatory mode. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to, of course, use your understanding of what's happened in the past, but you're kind of future-making. Mm. And so the work that I did with Yoko Wakama and Sarah Pink on Uncertainty and Possibility, which is a book that came out last year, is about how uncertainty can be a generative, we, we call it a generative technology, for thinking about the future and for being open to the possibilities of the future. Mm. So this is kind of, this kind of thinking about emergence, uncertainty, possibility, futurity, is at the heart of the kind of design ethnography project. You know, I, uh, I visited the Charles and Ray Ames workshop exhibition a few weeks ago, mm. where they sort of laid out and exploded in didactic fashion some of their experiments you know in experiments in bending plywood so it was a it was a research shop you know they were doing actively doing design research and it didn't look like research as i know it it was really inspiring and it looked much more like advention as Mm. as you say or and i wonder if if the adjective for advention is adventurous Maybe. <laughs> so it was really inspiring to me to think about what counted as research for them. Mm. Uh, and it was very much a matter of, you know, product, put it together, see see what happens rather than capturing a slice. So it was future-oriented, as you say, and also experimental. Mm. And so I recognised it as a kind of... Uh, a kind of ethnography, not one that I'd done. And they also had a giant whale hanging above uh, above their shop at a certain point. Yeah. So I think some on some level you're thinking in the same terms. Yeah, you're liking <laughs> the cetacean vibe that we're going with here. Yeah. No, I mean, practice-based research, of course, in the design and creative practice uh, fields is a large part of how research is done. And, you know, some of the most kind of creative and really fun collaborations I've been lucky to be a part of have been with designers and artists and creative practitioners. And it uses making as a way to think forward, right? Mm -hmm. As a way to think about the future conditions. So I'll give you an example, right? Mm. 
So I was involved in a project, um, I think it was about three years ago, called Contain Yourself. And this was with artists Fiona Hillary, Jordan Lacey, and Elliot Palmer. Fiona and Jordan are at RMIT uh, at the moment. And we had access to two containers on the Maribyrnong River, two shipping containers, and they were sighted on the river and they overlooked the river and looked out to the port of Melbourne. So you're looking at a container port, right? And the forklifts that are going up and down and the lights at night and there was a freight train that went past us on a bridge. And it was like these two kind of containers had somehow escaped from this kind of yard, this <laughs> container yard, and we're sort of facing it. So we had access to these spaces, I suppose, for three days. And so what we did was we wanted to experiment with the idea of atmosphere. So how could we interrogate what the atmosphere of that site was through creative practice? So what we did was everybody had their own practice. So Fiona's a visual artist, and at that point she was working in neon. Uh, Jordan Lacey is a sound artist, and so he works with kind of made found sound, industrial sounds, natural sounds, and also pre-recording. And Elliot Palmer is works in vibration. So what we did was we set up these containers with microphones and vibrating transducers, and we put strips of neon on them. We used projection, we used photographs of the side and projected them inside the containers, all to try to see what happened when we, when we combined light, sound, vibration. Of course, the weather of the site, this was in January, so January in a shipping container is very hot, I can report, <laughs> you know, by this river, the light reflecting from the river, the changing conditions of the site, the freight trains going by, and the visual vista of this container port. So we were basically responding to that in these different media. And so we built this over three days, and then we had a kind of a one-night-only sort of launch where we, Jordan and Elliot, live mixed sound and vibration, and, of course, the neon tint and uh, vibrancy changed as the sun went down. So we had this kind of site that you, you could stand inside um, one of the containers, but you could listen to them, you could throw things at them, you could touch them. So we, we kind of created this, this installation as a way to think about what happens when light and sound interact. And it was, it was great. And so, of course, we asked people then who came to this sort of launch, what do you make of the atmosphere of this site? And so we got things that we, that we didn't expect about people describing things that reminded them of, people describing the humming sound that they could feel as something that was mellow. So they went straight from what they could apprehend sensorially to how it made them feel to the kind of sense of, in many cases, sort of well-being that it created for them. So you've got this kind of spectrum of sensory, affective, and then being able to talk about that in kind of collective and emotional terms. Mm -hmm. So that kind of collaboration between design, creative practice, and ethnography is so fruitful, especially when you're thinking spatially and trying to understand how people are experiencing spaces and what kind of work those spaces are doing in the world. Mm. Yeah. You know, it is, it is it's hard to explain it in kind of abstract terms. I mean, creative mm -hmm. practice is always in place. There are always objects, there's always stuff, there's materiality, you know, you're always working with things. Mm. So, so you have to kind of explain it with examples because it is practiced, right? Mm. It's done with the hand and the eye. And that is what is so interesting about bringing it together with ethnography, which you're also doing with the hand and the yeah, eye, exactly. the heart, the head, the body, you know, mm. you're doing that in, in, in design and creative practice as well. 
Mm. And it seems to me the way you were describing sensory ethnography a little while ago connects just so well with how you've just described the kind of future-oriented landscape of bringing design and ethnography together. Those two are not that different from one another, are they? Can I ask a a follow-up about this, actually, which is thinking of the next step some of your research, you know, has been focused towards policymakers, as is some other people's around this table, including myself. Mm-hmm. What is that next step? So once you, you've done, you know, your sensory ethnography or your design ethnography, what is, what is compelling or how does that feed back into stakeholders out, out in, in these sectors? I'm quite curious about that next stage after you've got, you've gone and done the, this work. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you say, I have done work with industry and I mean, I think what's important is that if we understand what's happening in places, then we're making it possible for them to be better for more people. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend there's not a normative agenda there, right? Like, you know, we live in big, diverse, multicultural cities, diverse in many kinds of different ways. Um, this is why I'm most interested in public space. You know, our public spaces should be there for the public. But we need to understand what's happening in them in order to design them to best support that kind of flourishing of the public, you know, to best make them spaces that are fair, that are ethical and that are responsible. And I think that that's, that really is the agenda for social science in general, really. And, you know, design in many ways as well, to work towards more ethical and inclusive and responsible futures. Mm. So a small way of doing that, for example, is to do a study where you look at what's happening in a space and you tell governments or owners or, you know, your partners, this is what's actually sort of happening here. So how can we design in a way that doesn't do violence to what's happening there? I mean, not in dramatic terms, but, you know, in those sort of small ways of kind of socially just shared spaces. So, so absolutely, that's always part of, you know, kind of what I'm thinking about. And that is an ongoing mm-hmm. project. I mean, that is, you know, there's no completion point, you know, for that kind of thinking, is there? You're, we're always all working towards that. Yeah. No, Justice 2020 is, uh, is not around the corner. No, no. <laughs> no, it certainly isn't. Yeah, I feel as if you've talked about a range of different collaborations that you've done already. But I I want to ask you, I think, more generally about what allows you to articulate so well with such a range of different topics and a range of different people. You know, what particular about your methods make that possible? I also want to tell a very quick story. Please do. Um, (laughs) uh, Just as I was reading through your work, I came across a photograph. So one of your sites is the Queen Victoria Market, uh, and you write about the atmosphere that sort of, you know, this crucial part of the Queen Victoria Market that's also somewhat ineffable. As I was reading about that, I came across a photograph that's of a site that I've also spent time researching in, precisely that site. Mm. For you, you've been writing about the atmosphere of the, the sort of flowers of people through it and that sort of thing. And for me, I've been writing about dumpster diving there because a lot of my stuff is about waste and yeah. surplus. So I've been to exactly that spot, but doing a completely different thing, yeah. recovering just slightly spotty fruit. <laughs> mm. so, Ripe. Yeah, 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 it's very good jam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in fact, that day I was getting bananas to make banana bread for my students Great. so that I could talk about the dumpster. It, but it just made me think about how, 
your work and your methods might bring you into very very much the same spaces as people but uh, but doing something different and I was wondering if you could talk more about the ways that you have plugged into other people's projects since you work with so many yeah yeah I mean as I said I actually have a kind of back of the envelope rule for myself that every year I'll write one thing alone because everything else is collaborative so I have to exert this discipline to not you know sort of do everything with everybody else because sometimes you do need to chart a course of your own that you're kind of you know explicitly laying out what you want to say but overall I do collaborate a lot almost all my work is collaborative basically I really like thinking alongside other people I find it incredibly productive fun engaging enriching it energizes me it challenges me and moves me forward there's always so much that we that we don't know and I guess rather than trying to absorb things from outside my field why not just work with other people in other fields because then Mm. you get the benefit of this kind of you know larger kind of constellation of brains sort of all directed at the same problem so I find collaboration incredibly productive and I really I mean I can't understate this notion of fun because Mm -hmm. I think because creativity is fun right like it's stimulating it's enriching Mm -hmm. you know you have a good laugh Mm -hmm. you have a good time and from that great sort of insights Mm. uh, can be born so so I suppose that's I mean, I'm kind of outing myself as a fun seeker, really, because that's what it's kind of all about. Like, if you're not having a good time, Mm -hmm. right, like, why are you doing it? I mean, it's, you know, and and that sort of attraction to visual methodologies or to using sound recording or, you know, to working with artists or designers allows me to contribute something, you know, some small piece to what they're thinking. And then I get the massive benefit of their thinking as well. So I think I think I just have a proclivity to want to play with others, actually. Mm. I think that's just sort of where that comes from. And it's just always so enriching. So more collaboration, more um, of the time, more fun. That's what it's all about. I am so glad to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you twice over for saying that. I think that's something uh, I wish more people would talk about, mm. the sort of play in and the adventure. So much of creative practice and design feels like play because it's about uncertainty it's about vulnerability not knowing you know not even being able to know and so putting yourself into those kinds of spaces where you're never the expert is really productive really fun and really productive so I love being able to be open like that and and to work with other people who are also open like that and that also sounds like a wonderful moment to bring the conversation to a close So thanks again, Shanti and Andrea, for chatting with us. And thanks to our listeners for joining us in another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Our guest today has been Dr. Shanti Sumitoyo, an associate professor of design research at Monash University and a member of the Emerging Technologies Lab at Monash University. Our guest co-host has been the wonderful Dr. Andrea Whitcomb from Deakin University. If you'd like to learn more about Shanti's work, you can read about her at shantisumitoyo.com. If you'd like to tweet at either David or myself, I'm at TDNeal and David is at DH Border Giles. 
Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is made possible thanks to the support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and it's also made in association with the American Anthropological Association, and finally, with the invaluable assistance of our new intern, Lockie McKenzie. If you've enjoyed the podcast, think about giving us a review at iTunes or elsewhere. Otherwise, see you next time on this podcast.